The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. There are a ton of signals where Rhodes says he's got to invoke the Insurrection Act, but if he doesn't, we'll act. Or, Or he says if he doesn't, there will be a bloody, even more bloody civil war or revolution. And the trouble with that to me is that it sounds more like a vague prediction or a threat uh, than a plan. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 7th, 2022. The government has rested its case in chief in the criminal seditious conspiracy trial of Elmer Stewart Rhodes III and several other members of the Oath Keepers. The trial has been going on for the last several weeks, and our own Roger Parloff, Lawfare Senior Editor, has been in court every day keeping us up to date. We thought the end of the government's case would be a good opportunity for a larger check-in, so Roger joined me in the virtual jungle studio to talk through it all. Who has the government put on the stand? What parts of the government's case has it proved and what parts are a little bit dodgy? What can we expect as the defense presents its case, which began on Thursday, and what do we make of the government's silence on the question of the Insurrection Act. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 7th. The government rests. Roger Parloff does not. So the government's case is now finished, and Roger, why don't we start with just an overview of the case that the government presented What does the evidence look like having heard from the government, but not yet having heard from the defense? Yeah. So we heard from, by my count, uh, 28 witnesses over 19 days, 10 FBI agents, five Capitol Police, six Oath Keepers, and some unusual uh, extra people, uh, one Jason Albers, tremendously heavy on signal chat and uh, texts and uh, messages extracted from the phones of the various defendants. Um, There were two Oath Keepers who pled guilty, and uh, they were interesting. But 
what there was not were any of the three Oath Keepers who pled guilty to seditious conspiracy. So I was a little disappointed by that. Uh, some of their statements of offense were among the most interesting and damning, and I was surprised that they didn't show up. Now, of course, there's still a chance they might appear on a rebuttal case, but uh, I, I, I'm beginning to doubt that. And why do you think that that happened? It seems like if you're trying to prove a seditious conspiracy against Rhodes and his co-defendants, having testimony from people who pled guilty to that same seditious conspiracy would be important, no? Yeah. And they were also, Joshua James in particular was really well situated to he he stayed with the, at the same hotel as Rhodes on January fifth. He fled with Rhodes. He was at the Olive Garden Inn on the evening of January sixth when some of the Oath Keepers got together after the uh, insurrection. Rhodes began to freak out that night, and he and several others. He, he gave somebody else his phone, maybe James. And they all went off in different directions. And then James actually went to Texas later to with to meet with Ro Rhodes for almost a month, while Rhodes was you know buying more weapons. So he was somebody I really expected to hear from, but uh, his guilty plea had been sort of contentious. So maybe he just uh, was a, a loose cannon, somebody that was. Uh, and there was another fellow named uh, William Todd Wilson that a lot of people expected to testify because he uh, had claimed that right after the insurrection, they all went to, or several of them went to the Phoenix hotel. And that was where Rhodes allegedly tried to call, uh, called an intermediary to try to get him to contact the president. And uh, that also never came in. So you have to assume that there were either credibility issues that arose or uh, resistance from these uh, seemingly important witnesses. So which of the government's allegations against these defendants do you think it has proven in its case in chief, obviously subject to discrediting uh, as the defense presents its case, but which of the government's allegations do you think it has proven and which do you think the defense has uh, plausibly poked holes in in cross-examinations and uh, remain ripe for attack as the defense presents its own case. I think the substantive charge of corrupt obstruction of, a, uh, of an official proceeding is going to be pretty easy. Uh, four of them were charged with obstruction of justice. I think those certainly go to the jury. The Conspiracy, the big charge, the top charge, cons uh, seditious conspiracy, that's a interesting, almost like an exam question, the way I look at it. I haven't seen the jury, final jury instructions yet, but, you know, you have this very high level plotting to, you have tremendous amount of sedition in, in rhetoric, very high level plotting to stop uh, Biden from becoming president. But uh, you don't have a concrete plan. And so it's a sort of a, a, a spontaneous 
thing. They, they, they keep talking about we must do this, uh, we must take action, and January 6th is the deadline. And then finally, they're there uh, in the vicinity, and somebody else breaks into the Capitol, and people go in. They have not proven an order, an, an explicit order. The couple uh, who pled guilty and did testify said, you know, they regarded it, there was an implicit understanding, an implicit pl- uh, agreement, uh, and they thought it was obvious. And I'll, I'll sort of let me just read the testimony from here's Jason Dolan. He says, it's this idea of in the texts over and over, he's talking about the written channels. We will do something. We will do something. We will do something. And now here we are in front of the Capitol doors and they opened and it was, let's do something. And then Graydon Young, he put it this way. We talked about doing something about this fraud in the election before we went there on the 6th. And then when the crowd got over the barricade and they went into the building, an opportunity presented itself to do something. We didn't tell each other to do that, but it was common sense. So I don't know. Is that sufficient? So my question is, why wouldn't it be the essence of a seditious conspiracy? And I don't have the elements of it in front of me are a plot to use violence to obstruct the uh, lawful authority of the United States in some, in some sense. Right. And so you have the high level planning, you have all the preparations, they go there. So what if they didn't actually plan to enter the Capitol, even if they, even if none of them had entered the Capitol, why wouldn't they still be guilty of this of a seditious conspiracy, just one in which the objectives were incomplete? Well, I I just don't know if an appellate court will buy that. You you do have Young admitting it was spontaneous. There was no plan. It was common sense. But how do you? attribute that how beyond a reasonable doubt to the minds of the other defendants. Um, maybe it's sufficient, but it, it sounds borderline to me, but maybe you're right. So second question about this, was there evidence that you were, there were witnesses you were expecting to hear from that you didn't, but was there evidence that you were expecting to see that the government failed to put on? I thought there might be more, uh, something uh, more concrete about a plan to, at some point, to go to the Capitol. And, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm not being fair. There, there was evidence that at sort of an, a crucial point, 2.32 p.m., so the, the, the Capitol has been breached by the, you know, the, the actual building has been breached. There's a three-way call between Stuart Rhodes, the top defendant, Kelly Meggs, I would say the second top defendant, and Michael Green, who's not here today. He's been indicted, and he was the operations manager on um, that day. And uh, it's a phone call, and we don't, it's not taped. But right after that phone call, Meggs starts leading people 
up the steps. So, uh, you know, that is is pretty strong evidence that maybe uh, there was an order given and, and uh, something like that. But I, I did think that maybe, you know, if, if uh, one of these cooperating witnesses, they might have made it easier. You know, a cooperating might have said, yeah, I, Meg's told me uh, to do it. And we didn't, we didn't have that. All right. So let's talk about the defense on cross-examination during the government's case. Uh, There were some questions about some of the lawyers who were going to be representing these defendants. Uh, How did they perform during the government's presentation of its case? Well, Rhodes has two very good lawyers from Dallas. There was a third lawyer that he tried to a point about a week or two before trial, and he tried to fire the first two, and uh, Judge Maida would not permit it. Uh, He was trying to get a 90-day delay and a severance, you know, from the other defendants, and Maida said no way. So those two are are fine. I don't want to criticize any of the others, but Meg's lawyer is very good. And the lawyer, the defendants have some different, they're very competent. The defendants have different situations. There is one defendant, Caldwell, Tom Caldwell, who did not go in the building. And he was on the other side of the building. And he's an older man. And right now, at least, he walks with a cane. I don't know if the jury knows that or not. And he's not technically an oath keeper, you know, a dues paying oath keeper. And he was not on a lot of, he wasn't on any of the signal chat. So he's in a pretty good position as far, you know, there are special situations because he, he, he can say, I didn't hear those, you know, a lot of the seditious rhetoric. He certainly heard some and participated in some. Watkins has a unique defense, uh, Jessica Watkins. She's from Ohio, and I think there's sort of a a sympathy thing there. Um, She's a transgender female, and she was sort of forced out of the military. It's a little unclear if she quit or if she was pushed out because of gender. Just yesterday, her case started, and her fiance said that she had gone AWOL at some time because of the hazing was so was threatening her life. So I don't know if she was discharged for that. And that, that was very traumatic for her. And she missed being in the military and she was trying to make it with the oath keepers. And, uh, and, you know, essentially she was sort of overcompensating. That's not exactly a classic defense, but, it's some it's sympathy sympathetic at least in terms of sentencing unfortunately for her some of the most powerful evidence also comes in against her she she was using this walkie talkie app on her phone called zello and uh, a reporter for i think in on point uh, a public radio micah lowinger taped it and her conversations with the other people on Zillow are highly incriminating. And and then there's video of her using force in the Senate hallway, in a crowd, trying to, to 
push their way through. And she's saying, push, 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 get in there. Uh, they can't stop us. And then you actually have, so you have video of that. And in fact, you also have video of what that looked like from the riot police standpoint, because, and, and one of the riot police on the other side, you know, his body worn camera was operating two of them. We saw those cameras and one of them testified about. So there's very powerful evidence against her. It's actual use of force, which you don't have against a lot of the defendants. So her case is special. And then there's a guy named Ken Harrelson, who also, there's relatively, there's less evidence against him. He's a lower level player, and uh, he was not involved in most of these signal chats. And uh, so uh, he sort of has a a better chance than the other two. So you really see a possibility here that a jury could reasonably draw some pretty fine distinctions between these people. Yes. Yeah, I do think so. And then, you know, one charge, is maybe it's, it's we don't care much about, uh, they are all charged with destruction of property, uh, has to do with the uh, East Rotunda door and the the Columbus doors, the, the entrance to on the East front is has a double door and those were damaged. And there's sort of an important issue that the violence there as, as the crowd was pushing through was actually worse than I realized. There was a lot of real violence against the police to break through that door. And they were fairly close. They were, but they were not the ones doing it. They were probably, you know, maybe 10 yards back. So they're charged with, uh, you know, aiding and abetting the destruction of the door. They were certainly pushing. I don't know if that's sufficient, but it it also relates to whether they used force to come in or, or whether, as they're going to say, we arrived after the door already opened. And it's sort of technically true. What happened was rioters from inside eventually pushed the door outward and the rioters from the inside, uh, the t- together the two groups overcame the police. And these Oath Keepers were not in the first ranks doing the dirty work, spraying the police with pepper spray or bear spray, uh, but they were, you know, a few feet back. And did they see what was happening or not? So that will be an issue. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. 
it was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. All right, so it is now the defense's turn. What do you expect? And we've had, I guess, one day of defense 
presentation of its case uh, so far. What do you expect from the defense? And uh, they've, at least in Rhodes's case, they've made the unusual decision to have the defendant testify. What are we expecting? Yeah. So he started today and I was a little, well, I was surprised. I thought they would hold him back till last, but he is testifying. Uh, he's, you know, this guy, he, he likes to talk. He's very comfortable talking. He talks to everybody. He's given uh, interviews from jail. You know, he used to talk on Alex Jones all the time and he feels very comfortable on the witness stand. He's cheerful. He's folksy. Uh, I don't know if he's judging his audience very well, um, a DC jury, and he seems to be opening a lot of doors. Now, I don't know whether the judge is going to allow the government to go through those doors. Government isn't objecting to him, and he's portraying the Oath Keepers as, you know, Boy Scouts with AR who happen to, you know, have these AR 15s in their hands all the time. And um, uh, he's saying that uh, they're the opposite of racist. Uh, he, he would, if he found out about racism, he would drum those people out immediately. Well, the government never raised the racism issue. That was, in fact, they were forbidden uh, from doing so in a motion in limine. So now what happens? Uh, do, do, do they pursue that issue? And also they've said, well, you know, we've never been charged with, this is the first time we've ever been charged with something. I don't know if that's exactly true. So we'll see. It doesn't have much to do with the, the specific charges and, and we, we haven't gotten very far. So we'll have to see how he, he copes with just, I mean, there are tons of outlandish, uh, seditious, uh, signal messages and speeches and open letters uh, that were posted on the site about uh, resisting the Chi-Com puppet regime of Biden. And after January 6th failed, you have statements to the effect that uh, my only regret is we didn't have rifles. We could have uh, we could fixed things then and there, or, you know, uh, we would have hanged uh, Pelosi from a, a lamppost. So uh, we'll have to see how he holds up under cross. And just to be clear, under cross, there's no doubt, right, that he gets to be, the government gets to ask him about every single one of those signal messages, right? Correct. And, and actually, this was interesting. There really aren't not just the government, but uh, there's an issue about what about the other defendants who may have some conflicting perspectives at times. And actually, there are there apparently is some law in the Fourth Circuit, and, and the, somebody testifying in a multi-defendant case is not that common a situation, and there's no controlling case law on it in the D.C. Circuit. And apparently the Fourth Circuit has said, well, if you waive your Fifth Amendment with right with respect to yourself, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean you waive it with respect to answering questions from co-defendants. And so, but anyway, to clarify that situation today, he on the record, his lawyer had him on the record say, look, I'm waiving my Fifth Amendment right to be silent. 
with respect to everybody. So the government can cross-examine him freely, and all his co-defendants can cross-examine him freely if they need to. All right. So how much of this trial have we done, and how much do you expect remains to be done before the jury gets it? The original estimates were that the defense case would take about two weeks, and then there's an expectation that there will be a rebuttal case. Uh, So I I think probably, I think the defense may be exaggerating the length of their case, but I think maybe two weeks is about right. So Roger, as long as we've been talking about this case, we've been talking about the Insurrection Act and the chief defense seems to be, no, this wasn't a seditious conspiracy. It was a lawful plan to bring people and weapons to the vicinity of the seat of government so that when Donald Trump, the president of the United States, invoked the Insurrection Act and deputized the Oath Keepers to be essentially government militia, we'd be there ready and waiting. How is that defense working for them? That's a a really important question and one that makes me very uncomfortable again, just as the conspiracy proof makes me uncomfortable, uh, sort of from the prosecution's perspective. Uh, The prosecution has taken, has, has not tried to meet the question head on about whether Trump could have invoked the Insurrection Act. You know, I guess because it's, there's very little law on it. And there are some 19th century cases, you know, I'm talking like 1829, 1849, saying the president has sort of unreviewable power to decide when to use it. Obviously, it's typically used when there's uh, order has broken down because of an earthquake or because of a hurricane or or because of riots but you know it hasn't been used for by a president who lost an election to stay in power and it also usually it means you call up the national guard you don't call up these disparate disorganized people that call themselves militia But unfortunately, there are these archaic laws on the books, which the government did not really engage with, that say something to the effect of, you know, he could call up able-bodied men between 17 and 45. And Rhodes has a special theory about maybe how he could call up veterans up to the age of 65, because Rhodes himself is about 55. So... And instead, they've said it really doesn't matter for two reasons. One is that Trump didn't invoke it, and they went into the Capitol anyway. Uh, So maybe that's a good response. The reason I'd like more clarity about it is that there's a tremendous amount of evidence about the so-called quick reaction force, the QRF, that the Oath Keepers uh, organized at a Comfort Inn in Virginia, 10 minutes away from the Capitol, where they stockpiled an enormous number of uh, AR-15s and other weapons. That looks bad, and that's a big part of the government's evidence, and the defense can say, well, 
what's the problem? That doesn't violate Virginia law. You haven't said there's anything, you know, illegal about that. And we that was just contingent. You know, if the president invoked the Insurrection Act, we would bring it in. And he didn't. So and we didn't. So what's the problem? That's all irrelevant. And I, I, I am concerned about an appellate court uh, looking at that and saying, yeah, what's wrong? What's wrong with that? That uh, we this, this is really irrelevant to your case. Okay, but but in order to buy that, let's let's deal with a jury mm-hmm. as a factual on the facts before we deal with an appellate court on the law. Mm-hmm. It seems to me, in order to buy that as a defense, you have to have you have to hold three ideas in your mind at once. One is. All right, there was a high-level conspiracy as articulated in the texts, right? Prevent Biden from assuming yep. office, yeah. stop the count, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But the second is, it's really four things, four things in your mind at the same time. The second is, but that conspiracy actually didn't have an action associated with it. It was going to, we were going to do something but we didn't know what. And number three, we only entered the Capitol, not because of that conspiracy. That wasn't the end of it. That was just something that happened spontaneously. And number four, all the weapons were, you know, were there not because of any conspiracy, ignore all those signal texts, but just because of the possibility that the president might invoke the Insurrection Act. Uh, And it seems to me that the more logical reading of the facts is you knew you were going to do something. You weren't quite sure what it was. You were going to stop the thing, just as all the, the signal text said. You brought the weapons in case he uh, invoked the Insurrection Act, but you were going to do something anyway, and you did. Yeah, and th- that is the government's case, and in fact, it's it's in fact it's a little stronger than I described it because there's two other things. There, well, there are a ton of signals where Rhodes says he's got to invoke the Insurrection Act, but if he doesn't, we'll act, or or he says if he doesn't, there will be a bloody, even more bloody civil war or revolution. And the trouble with that, to me, is that it sounds more like a vague prediction or a threat uh, than a plan. The, the other thing the government has, and it, it pushes quite heavily, is that on November 9th, 2020, there was a go-to meeting, which is like a Zoom meeting of both keepers. There, uh, Rhodes described, he s- said that the Insurrection Act was, quote, legal cover, that basically we're going to act anyway and and the Insurrection Act is legal cover for us. So it's like a ruse, you know, this is the excuse. So the the government relies a lot on that too. But that's really just one piece of evidence, one statement in a uh, Zoom conversation that not everybody attended. Um, I think three defendants attended. So uh, and and the the overwhelming sense is that in fact 
they never do act because Trump never does invoke the Insurrection Act. And you get this, and even after January 6th, Rhodes is still talking about trying to get Trump to invoke the Insurrection Act. And the impression I get is of sort of live action role playing. You have all of these sort of, in a way, pathetic, their rhetoric is outrageous, but do they really, is it high, and and this is part of the defense that, is it hyper, is it really just all hyperbole and political rhetoric? And would they have really done something if, you know, the Proud Boys and others hadn't broken those windows? I get a sense of the dog that catches a car, you know, and uh, it's like, what do we do now? We've been talking big and now uh, they've breached the Capitol. What do we do now? Uh, We're going to look bad if we don't go in. Maybe I'm bending over backwards, but it's not the rock crusher case uh, I would prefer to see uh, as a as a prosecutor. Interesting. It's kind of the Proud Boys made me do it defense. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's sort of how I see it. Uh, that isn't exactly something they're articulating. But although they are saying, you know, provocateurs broke broke in, it wasn't us. And uh, and we just got carried away with the moment like 900 other people. And and if you took their uniforms off and and they weren't touching one another, you know, a lot of them went in there, did nothing, came out. Some, like I said, Watkins and some of the others, they were uh, more a aggressive. more active. Yeah. So in the context of murder, we have a solution to this problem, right? So if you go into a liquor store, you're just trying to rob the liquor store. You're not trying to hurt anybody. But the gun goes off you drop it, it goes off and it kills the liquor store salesman. You're guilty of felony murder, even if you didn't mean to. And what you're sort of describing is a felony seditious conspiracy, right? You have a seditious conspiracy going, but you're not actually going to execute it. But then you get wrapped up and you're committing a felony, this obstruction that everybody else is pleading to. And along the way, the kind of question is, does the the seditious conspiracy that was kind of just all talk until you started committing the felony become a real seditious conspiracy because now you're doing it in the course of, of invading the Capitol? I mean, I don't think that makes out the elements of a seditious conspiracy because there needs to be a meeting of the mind. Right. There needs to be a connection between the two events. But certainly the proof uh, begins to look like that. Yeah. If I could say one other thing about the Insurrection Act that really concerns me, uh, uh, it's just if, if this case is, if it were to be overturned at the appellate level, and, and that's I just wonder the degree to which it would empower uh, militias all over the country, this notion that, well, maybe we can be called up. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with stockpiling weapons uh, at uh, any old hotel. And I'm worried about that. I really wish the government had addressed 
the applicability of the Insurrection Act head on. And and actually, I just was reading their Rule 29, the opposition motion to the, they're filing in opposition to Rule 29. Now, you know, after the government's case, the defense lawyers routinely file this motion, these motions called Rule 29 motions to dismiss the case, to dismiss the charges for lack of sufficient evidence, uh, meaning you, you shouldn't submit it to the jury. And the judge hasn't ruled on them, is taking them under advisement. And there, for the very first time, the government is saying, well, look, the Insurrection Act also, in addition to all the other things we've talked about, it doesn't apply because the president first has to issue an order of dispersal or something like this. I don't know how uh, the government brings that up now. They've presented no evidence of that. I don't know if they could sort of, it seems like sandbagging the defense to bring it up for the first time now. Anyway, I'm I'm concerned about militias being empowered if this case doesn't succeed on the, on the Seditious Conspiracy Act. But although it would have to fail as a matter of law, right? I mean, the problem doesn't arise if a jury acquits saying the government hasn't proved these facts beyond a reasonable doubt. It only arises, I would think, if the jury convicts and then the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court says, wait a minute, these facts cannot, as a matter of law, constitute a seditious conspiracy. Right. That's why it's the latter that that concerns me. I also don't see how the judge could give the jury this instruction about uh, giving a dispersal order when it it, there was never any note, you know, we've briefed the Insurrection Act earlier and they didn't bring that up. But I just don't know what, what the law is there. All of that is for later in the trial. Roger, we will check back in with you as things progress. Okay, great. Thank you, Ben. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer. This episode is the most fatigued but indefatigable Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Hey folks, I know there are still some of you who have not signed up to be material supporters of Lawfare. And you know who you are too, because you heard an ad from me on this episode as a result. We can fix both of those problems. You can get rid of the ad. We can get one more material supporter. Go to patreon.com slash lawfare. Become a material supporter of Lawfare. Come into the light. We want you there. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.